HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And something that mm, people might not realize, that is roses are indigenous to Iran. And distilling the essential oils of the flower to make rose water has been practiced there for over 2,500 years. Every May, when the city of Kashan is enveloped in pink and a sweet floral scent, there's a festival that honors the ancient tradition of boiling petals in barrels of water and collecting and condensing the rising steam. Hence, we get, from which we get, rose water. Now, rose water, as many of you know, is, is well, here, I guess in, in this country primarily was used in baking. But we will hear some of its other uses and some of the background, because I have with me today cookbook author Yasmin Khan. She recently attended um, one of these festivals and notes that for Iranians, the rose transcends botanical or culinary significance. Yasmin was born in London and lived in Iran as a small child and travel, has traveled back and forth many times to the country. And this, she has a, new, a recent book called The Saffron Tales, um, a wonderful book with delicious recipes and through this book it opens a window into the country and its cuisine before immersing herself in the persian kitchen and persian food yasmin worked as a human rights campaigner working on issues of social justice and poverty with a special focus on conflict in the middle east she's a regular contributor to british television and her work her written work on recipes and food is appeared in many publications throughout um, england Welcome, Yasmin. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. 
I love what the publisher wrote about your book, that in the Saffron Tales, Yasmin Khan reveals a side of Iran that never makes the headlines, but is central in its story. It is, is its dazzlingly delicious food. And I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful thing to say about, you know, we forget so often about everything else that goes on. And got to step back and say, well, what about the people? What about, you know, what, what about their lives and their food? And indeed, in this book, you really do it. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, as someone who was born in England, but has family and deep roots in Iran, um, I've always been very aware of this massive gulf that exists between the Iran that I know and love and how it's routinely kind of depicted. So this book very, for me was very much about uh, trying to take people on a journey through the country um, and be able to showcase some of the beauty and art and culture and history that uh, exists there. Yeah. Well, the, Rose, the Rosewater Festival, which actually is going on right now, is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. It goes on for the harvest is for the next month. That was that was a wonderful revelation to me. Um, I didn't realize that roses were indigenous to Iran. Um, is are there festivals in places other than Kashan? I know Kashan is the is the mecca for for roses, and in fact, there's a story about the mecca being cleaned with rose water as well. Right? Is that is that the the main place? Are there other festivities that go around, go the, around the country? Um, well, you know, over the, the duration of the Rose Harvest, which starts now and goes on for the next kind of six weeks, um, there are all the towns in which kind of roses are, are collected um, will have have mar- large gatherings. But Kashan's the main hub for, for the kind of uh, annual festival, which gets, I mean, it gets thousands of visitors every year. Oh, I can imagine. There. It's it's, just well, gorgeous. it's beautiful, too. I mean, you look at that many roses mm-hmm. gathered in one spot. It's that's great. And as you drive in to the to the kind of town, you just kind of, you know, I remember like it's it's warm and you know it's spring at this time of year and you just get hit with this waft of of roses, just the sweet scent. Um so it's just quite extraordinary um just to see kind of the the different stages of the process. Um uh you know, it, it's such a, a a delicate process, you know, the roses are harvested by hand. And then you know, the petals individually removed, um, and then they're placed in these large steel vats uh, and filled with water and, and boiled. And then the water that evaporates and comes up from from the uh, not evaporates, obviously the water that's, that that boils comes up and is extracted, and that is distilled to make rose water. And then you know, depending on um, the intensity of the of the distillation, it can also be condensed into make kind of oils. Uh, well, and I read somewhere where the oils, um, you know, obviously the rose water production is is a big deal because everyone uses rose water throughout mm-hmm. the the country and and abroad. But the rose oil, amazing. I mean, that not you don't get a lot of oil from all that distillation process. You get mostly the condensation mm-hmm. of the of the steam for the rose water. So very little is produced, and the price of a bottle something toward between seven and ten thousand dollars for a small bottle of rose oil I read and of course one of the major purchasers is France and their perfume wow yeah well, I'm, I'm, I'm not, just I'm not surprised I mean and um, when you you know the most of the time when we kind of go and buy rose essential oils here uh, you know it will be heavily blended of course yeah, yeah. so yeah. when you get the pure extraction uh, you just need a tiny drop and oh I can only just, imagine yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Well, so rose water is an integral ingredient in a lot of the cooking, not only cooking, but but other um, traditions 
throughout the country. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Well, it was yeah, fascinating that you kind of uh, raised the Mecca issue. Um, yeah, roses um, uh, are used in a variety of ways in Iranian cooking, obviously in desserts. You know, the, right. I mean, uh, flower waters such as orange blossom uh, water are also used. Um, and uh, I, so I can, I can go through kind of the, the, the foodie things in a minute, but other ways in which they're used are medicinally. So, you know, um, different uh, natural herbists in Iran will, will kind of offer you um, remedies for ailments such as stomach ache or headache. Um, obviously, they're used for beautifying kind of products. You know, my sister uses it as a toner. It's very common <laughs> to kind of use, you know, rose water. It's supposed to be very good for the skin, anti-inflammatory, and obviously the scent is exquisite. Um, but on, on um, for religious reasons as well, um, um, when you, often when people pass away, actually, they will bathe the body in rose water mm. before you bury them. The idea being that kind of helping people on the journey to um, the afterlife, that they're bathed in this kind of beautiful water. Um, and yeah, and also in, in Mecca, the, the cleaning that will happen, they will kind of... Um, Use rose yeah. water, the purest yeah. of, of water, right? Um, well, obviously, well, for, I know, um, from history of, of American mm. cooking and, and baking, it was a while before we had vanilla beans and we were able to import vanilla beans and had vanilla extract. So rose water was something that was available and rose water was, was the flavoring. You, you mentioned for sweets and for baking. Indeed, rose water, orange blossom water, as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my favorite recipes that's in my book is a recipe for a Persian love cake, which is uh, something kind of I invented. That's a kind of celebration of the Persian garden, really. Um, and it's, it's an almond cake that's flavored with um, uh, rose water and and then topped with kind of um, kind of a lemon lemon zest and uh, rose petals and pistachios but uh, uh, roses I think rose water is such a wonderful addition to desserts and you just need a tiny amount and that floral scent that you get is exquisite uh, well I just I, I was doing some research on the Rosewater Festival just to mm. learn a little bit about it and, and sort of have an idea of what we would be talking about and it, I was I was amazed, and the process they still I know they have a mechanized mechanized processes factories for you know because it's such a huge production that goes on with supplying rose water all over the world, but they still use some of the old um, stone ovens, stone uh, fireplaces, and and fired by wood and clay pots and. That's yeah, a, it's a very laborious um, process, so you, you can kind of understand why it becomes such a um, an expensive ingredient. Um, but in a way, I think, you know, that adds to, you know, there's something very romantic about roses and rose water. Right, right. Uh, they're very evocative, aren't they? You know, the colours, the scent. Um, you know, I think there's a reason why through throughout the, the throughout millennia they've been used in so many different cultures as 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 a a, a romantic kind of tool yeah, and i think well an expression yeah. just the flower yeah. itself is, yeah. a, is a beautiful expression it is yeah. and um and I think that is part of the magic of that festival for me, kind of when I visited it, because you feel a bit of that magic through the different, um, you know, centuries and thousands of years old processes that you see. You feel as if you're, it's, it's very enchanting. Uh, how many bags of rose petals does it take right. to make a, a one bottle of rose water? I mean, you know, it so, so many. many. So many. <laughs> I was <laughs> thinking, I was like, do I have an answer for that? I don't, but no, just so yeah. many. I mean, just, um, I've looked at pictures of that were just, you know, 
fields mm-hmm. filled with, you know, harvested roses. Yeah, Amazing. and beautiful pinks and fuchsias um, and reds. Um, there's a sp- this particular flower called the Gula Mohammadi, which is the one um, that, that is, is used predominantly to make rose water. Right. And that's the one where the petals are also used decoratively. You can often find them in Middle Eastern shops. And um, it's a gorgeous, yeah, gorgeous And pink. we know them, I have, the, we know them as the damask Roses. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I know I wrote that down someplace. Yeah. <laughs> right. And actually, there's a place in Nor- where in Europe is very famous for the Damascan rose. Um, I want to say Bulgaria. That's mm. the also, which is also something I found out in the research. You know, as I was doing research for kind of roses, that's the other central hub for this particular type of rose. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm always interested in how how veg- you know how plants travel and how ingredients travel. So yeah. I wonder which, which way. Well, ingredients way. in particular in the Persian kitchen, there are so mm. many aromatic ingredients and, and mm-hmm. ingredients with very intense flavors. And, and what comes to mind immediately, what are, you know, are um, pomegranates, dates, barberries, nuts, herbs, lots yeah. of herbs, um, orange blossom water, as you mentioned, and saffron, of course, the title of yes. your book is saffron water. Um, what, so, um, Tell me some of, a little bit about the the Persian pantry. What mm. what are staple items like that that would that are important? Well, what I think is so exciting about the Persian kitchen is that the flavors that you find there are very welcoming. You know, it's not an overpowering cuisine. It's not an assault on the senses in the way that Thai or Indian food is. Um, I think in a way, rose water is a perfect example of a Persian flavoring because it is subtle and sweet and delicate. And you'll find that in all of the ingredients in the Persian pantry. Um, saffron being obviously the title of the book, but right. also um, probably the most evocative of, um, of Iran's uh, spices. Uh, I was lucky enough to visit, you know, in terms of harvesting a saffron farm during my journey for the book, during the saffron harvest. And again, it was just fascinating to find out why this is such an expensive ingredient. You know, um, I mean, saffron is can only be harvested for around three weeks a year in uh, early, kind of late October, early November. Uh, the saffron comes from a purple crocus and the crocuses can only be picked at dawn. That's when they open, open up, up. Yeah. and um, they each have three stamens. So again, you know, I was visiting this, this farm and thinking, gosh, this is such a, you know, can it only be harvested by hand and such a laborious process, but so much um, kind of love goes into it and that kind of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, do, I yeah. dole those threads out v- yeah. very, very carefully yeah. when I use it because I realize, well, first of all, it's very expensive mm-hmm. and you see why it's expensive. Mm-hmm. It's labor intensive. But those three little stamen, I mean, they're what I'm, not even a half an inch long, you know, right. it's just, you know, tiny little things that have to be very handled very delicately yeah Amazing. which is why in iran that we prepare them in a very unique way and that i've not found any other culture that does it but it's the way to get the most uh, bang for your buck with your saffron in that we always grind uh, saffron stamens with a pinch of sugar or salt and then steep them in hot water so you get this kind of red scarlet elixir that you can just drop into your dishes right, and so it yes. you and it makes a very it, it enables you to get the most potency from the stamens. Mm. Um, but okay, so here we have saffron. Um, other common um, uh, things you'll find in the Persian pantry are um, molasses and kind of fruits that were used to um, flavor dishes. Uh, the dominant uh, flavor of Persian food is sweet and sour. It's that kind of Italian agrodolce flavor, and we use pomegranate molasses date molasses you know dried plums dried apricots um 
barberries, kind of lots of sour fruits to temper uh, our stews and soups and rice dishes. Um, so that's a very common part. And um, I would say then, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head actually when you mentioned the herbs. I think the other defining feature of Iranian cuisine is just the copious amount of aromatic greens right. that we I put in our dishes. I was thinking of like a cuckoo in yeah. particular, a, a little frittata or omelette made with you didn't even know eggs were in it because it's all green it's all yeah. herbs it's it's wonderful you just yeah. look at it and it feels like it's good for you it's this yeah. kind of verdant celebration of spring that we always eat um at iranian new year which takes place on the spring equinox right well your um your food writing is both as you've mentioned both very cultural and very personal having roots in in the country and you stated that many of the recipes in your book are for dishes that have been cooked the same way for thousands of years. And surely you modernized a few of them for the book, I mean, because of, of methods and things. But um, talk a little bit about some of those dishes that are, are the traditional dishes that have been cooked. That we, I mean, I know there are, are many of them, but the ones in particular that stand out for you. Sure. Well, I guess the standout dish would be uh, a dish called fesinjun, which is chicken poached in a sauce of ground walnuts and pomegranate molasses. Um, walnuts are used in Persian cooking in the same way that, say, peanuts or groundnuts are used in East Asian cuisine. Like, we use them in all kinds of stews. We grind them into pastes. And this stew is one of my absolute favourites. Um, my grandmother used to make it with duck. Um, you, know, in my, in my, in my, you know, you can also make it with eggplant. And it's, it's creamy and sweet and sour and just incredibly simple and you know there are records in Persepolis um, which is this ancient town that's uh, ancient ruins sorry that are over 2,500 years old kind of one of the old centers of the Persian empire but there on uh, on some of the stones that you find there there are references to Fissinjun that they've kind of found uh, in that the old emperors would be kind of given this this stew so I mean that is an example of a dish that's extremely old and you know it's a dish that only has a couple of ingredients in it so it's stood the test of time right. because it's right. so delicious so that's an example of of a classic dish but um you know what i wanted to do was very much make persian food accessible and part of that means modernizing it um i think that up until this point actually in the uk we've seen a real surge in interest in middle eastern and persian food but um i think one of the reasons it's yet to have broken out of its little niche is um a lot of the uh, recipe books that kind of came out from the diaspora many years ago were very much focused on kind of chronicling kind of age-old recipes but I really wanted to make recipes that we could just cook you know on a midweek day kind of supper that just brings some Persian elements into it and also because of the way I like to cook and eat kind of um, there's a much more of a focus on kind of vegetable based dishes plant based mm -hmm. dishes mm -hmm. adapting recipes to make um, them quicker to cook less fat less meat so some examples of that would be um, another kind of one of my uh, show-stopping dishes, actually, I think, in the book. It's a, a baked chicken. Uh, sorry, it's a baked rice dish. Now, mm -hmm. cooking rice in Iran is elevated. Uh, Persian to, rice yeah. is, is, yes, it's, it's very special. <laughs> yeah. And, and so this is a dish that's normally made. Uh, it's kind of layers of saffron and yogurt-infused rice that you put a layer, and then you would traditionally put a layer of chicken, but I kind of use... Um, eggplant and and mushrooms um uh fragrance with uh, sorry cooked with cumin and um cilantro seeds and then i put another layer on so that's kind of example of kind of making something um 
uh, vegetarian. How else have I adapted? I've adapted so many of them, actually. Um, uh, let's think. Another one would be um, some of the soups that I make in the book. Again, kind of, uh, there's a, you know, Iranians are big soup makers. The word in Farsi mm-hmm. for uh, um, cook is oshpaz, which means soup maker. And the word for kitchen is oshpazi, which means place where place soup, where soup is, is made, made. <laughs> so a lot of the, the 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 soups i've kind of modernized to again kind of reduce the meat content flush up the, um the the vegetables and just make them quicker to to oh, make yeah. interesting and it's something that could be stretched yeah for many days and for many people right mm-hmm. that's great um I notice that you don't have a lot on breads, in, mm. even though breads are, are very important in, throughout the, uh, the culture and the food. But I will say that I, you can't leaf through this book without getting hungry. The, the pictures are beautiful. And, but the recipes, you're right, they're very approachable. For me in particular, some things you don't even realize, you'd be eating them and not realize that they're necessarily um, uh, Iranian-Persian mm-hmm. We'll talk about that too. Um, cuisine. I'm thinking particularly of like a cinnamon and date omelet. Oh my god! I mean, so you know, good. just it's what a nice, sweet, you know, like a, a delicately sweet breakfast treat, you know, and, and yet it's just and fragrant with the cinnamon. It's one of my favorite recipes in the book. It's so easy to make. And uh, another one that just that that was the first recipe I kind of keyed into because I was leafing through and I stuck on that page was um, it's rice with lentils mm-hmm. and dates mm-hmm. and walnuts and i mean this it's just a rice dish right mm-hmm. and lentils but yet it has this richness to it mm-hmm. i think well, that there's a big misnomer about middle eastern cuisine that somehow it's very alien or complicated or difficult mm. um i think just those recipes that you outlined just now just show that actually often it's just about using ingredients we'd have in our pantry anyway right. but in a different with a different technique maybe not four cups of walnuts but no exactly <laughs> but you're right a lot of walnuts are used in, yeah. in that and uh, I know I had Naomi DeGood on with mm. her book A Taste of Persia when she traveled throughout the country looking and co- had to cook some of the recipes for an event and I, I said more walnuts more walnuts I mean there were so many yeah. walnuts used walnuts and herbs I mean I could have bought the store out you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. but yeah. what a delicious combination yeah and I think one of the really exciting things that I discovered on my travels through Iran was just the diversity of the cuisine so you know um, I traveled 2,000 miles from the north of the country um, by the mountains of Tabriz, where the food there is very influenced by kind of Turkish cuisine and Georgian cuisine and uses like judicious amounts of dairy produce and thick slabs of cream with everything. Um, through the rice paddies um, by the Caspian Sea, where my family are from, where it's all kind of lush, green, verdant landscapes and tea plantations and rice paddies. Through the deserts of the Persian of, of central Iran where they use lots of dried fruits and dried nuts right down to the south of Iran where the food is just completely different because uh, the south of Iran used to be on the old maritime spice route bringing mm-hmm. spices from India to Venice so the food there is a mix of just like a thrilling mix of Indian and Arabic flavors so the main thing I discovered and I've tried to chronicle in the in the travel essays in the book and also the recipes is that you know Persian food is so diverse and it's such a huge country that each region that you visit because of the climate, because of the landscape, it just has completely different recipes. So 
you know, uh, bread being a perfect example, my family are from the north of Iran, where my family are rice farmers. Uh, so I kind of had the luxury of having this playground as a child of, of a farm to run around on with my grandparents. Um, but, you know, we traditionally, I mean, my grandfather could easily eat rice kind of for breakfast, lunch and dinner, you know. I mean, he wouldn't, but it, it, depending on where you are, the, the food there is different. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, there, and you, you mentioned your grandfather and you mentioned um, some spices which are a couple topics I'm going to touch on when we come back from a short break. So stay with us. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Yasmin Khan, whose book is a saffron, a saffron tale, a saffron tale, or saffron tales, the saffron, the saffron tales. Let's get it right. (laughs) The saffron tales from Bloomberry Press, and um, it. One thing that I wanted to um, to talk about, because I know so many people are often confused when you say, "Well, Persian cooking or Iranian cooking." Well, Iran is in what was. Persia. Can you explain a little bit more about that? There. Well, actually, um, Iran has always been Iran to Iranians. Uh, Persia was just a name given to it by the ancient Greeks, and that kind of stuck in the West for thousands of years. In the same way that you know, lots of countries, you know, Germany, uh, people in Germany call them call their country Deutschland. Um, uh, in India, it's Bharat. So that's very common. Well, the Roman Empire is the Roman Empire. Yeah, <laughs> it has it has a little far reaching. Yeah, a little further reaching. So yeah. what happened was around th- uh, in the kind of mid nineteen thirties, the Iranian government kind of issued a decree that kind of requested that actually everybody in the world call Iran by the country, by the name that it's always known itself. Um, but you know what happened really after the nineteen seventy nine uh, revolution in Iran um, because Iran. Uh, became so associated with its government and with kind of negative connotations that surrounded that, a lot of people in uh, the USA started referring, who are Iranians, started referring themselves as Persian. Hmm. So it's a very American phenomenon that uh, in Europe we uh, are used to calling it Iran and uh, in the US just because of, um, yeah, so, so that's the thing. So I really battled over whether I should do that because in a way, you know, you think of Persia and you think of like magic carpets and Shirazada <laughs> and a thousand and one nights and you think of Iran and, you know, on a good day, you know, people think of bombs and nukes and angry mobs. And, you know, I actually, um, you know, the whole reason I wrote this book was that I wanted to kind of get past those stereotypes and the reason I travelled around Iran and into people's homes and sharing stories from inside Iran was to try and capture some of the, the beauty 
uh, that exists in, in this in this place and kind of get beyond the stereotypes and share something that everyone can relate to. Right. Well, when you mentioned, and, and I'm glad that you brought up the travels because I was going to ask you, what do you mean by the land of milk and honey, you know, going to Tabriz, but... And then you cleared that up because Georgia and, the, and that whole region up there, as you said, is known for their cheeses and, and dairy. And So aside from there being different regional differences in the cuisine, which, stand, which makes all sense, you know, all the sense in the world, it also crosses other borders. It crosses borders of what now are independent countries and religions, and, and yet all the food is pretty much they're eating the same ancient foods right that's, that's right what um do you mean sorry i i did well just i mean that all these all these foods are are all part of you know you can eat dishes today that were eaten you know by mm. by other cultures you know so many years ago and and people might have their differences but they're all eating basically some of the same foods yeah there's a rich yeah. tapestry of, yeah. of of commonality that threads its way through yeah. iranian cuisine um you what were when you were um, reproducing some of these recipes, and obviously you did a lot of your work in London, I would mm-hmm. imagine, right? When you came back, um, ingredients that were harder for you to find, um, spices in particular, and what spices are are really truly different that we might not be that familiar with. Mm. I don't think there are that many. I think Persian food is really accessible. Um, in terms of saffron, obviously we use right. that in our rice dishes. And the other main spices we use are cumin and cinnamon and uh, ground uh, coriander seed, but cilantro seed. Um, so as long as you have those in your pantry, you'll be able to whip up a Persian feast. Yeah. Now, I ran into a, a little problem in reproducing some recipes with um, trying to find... Gulpar. Well, that's that, the one. That one. Yeah. And, and fenugreek. Fenugreek, ah. fenugreek leaves. I mean, the, yeah, I can find the seeds or the powder. Uh, or powder was difficult to, to find. Yeah, so fenugreek leaf is uh, obviously. Uh, yeah, I did write it in London, and in the UK we have such a massive Indian population. So you um, find it, yeah. yeah. So we find it there. So it's often labelled meti. Yes, um, that's where I, that's, that's how I in, that's yeah. how I ended up finding it. I yeah. went to an Indian um, supplier yeah. of spices and found meti. So I don't have that, but I have frozen yeah. and the frozen leaves of meti. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but again, like I said, you know, it's interesting in terms of food trends um, because now in the major supermarkets in the UK, so Waitrose, Sainsbury's, etc. I mean, they all sell barberries and pomegranate molasses right. and saffron. So um, hopefully uh, that will kind of expand here in the US yeah. as well. Well, we can now finally get easily get yes. pomegranate molasses. That's yeah. For a while it was difficult, but you know, yeah. now it's much more accessible. Right. Great. Um, well, I, what I... I want to touch on. You mentioned the um, the what you call it a love cake or a sweetheart mm-hmm. cake, but um, some other sweet. That's my new go to for Valentine's Day now. <laughs> yeah, forget the chocolate. Um, the um, some other sweets because mm. I know we you know we think of the date of so many dates and and uh, dried fruits being used in the more savory, as you said, the sweet and sour dishes. What in particular were some of the um, the sweet dishes that you? presented in your book 
Mm. So, seeing as we're celebrating Rosewater, I'll, I'll talk about yeah. those ones <laughs> first. Um, so, there's a big influence of French um, pastries throughout Iran. Uh, Iran, and there was a big crossover between Iran and France in the, the last kind of century. My grandfather learned French in, at school in Iran. And that means that on every street corner in the country, you find little patisseries selling small pastries. And one of the most common ones is non um, e So, they're little shoe buns filled with thick slabs of rose water cream and pistachios mm. so they're kind of kind of crunchy and creamy so i've got a recipe for that in the book um again you know shoe buns are surprisingly easy people stay away from shoe pastry but um it's very it's very yeah, easy, it's, it's easy you know and uh and, and very fun to make um so that's one um another one on the celebrating kind of rose water aspect is a dessert called um, uh, Ferney, um, which in the book I, I kind of suggest you can make with orange blossom water as well, uh, but I personally prefer it with rose water. And it's um, a Persian twist on a rice pudding, really. So instead of using kind of rice grains, you use ground rice. Mm. So you can buy that in a store or you can just shove your rice in a, in a food processor till you get a fine powder. And what you end up with is this very um, creamy set pudding that has a consistency somewhat of a panna cotta that's um, flavoured with kind of you can use the milk of your choice um, and, and rose water and, and cinnamon and date syrup. Um, but what I also wanted to do in the book was to celebrate Persian ingredients in the desserts because in the Middle East there isn't a massive dessert culture in the same way mm-hmm. that, that we, we're used to. Um, and, you know, being from the UK, I mean, we... We're very fond of tea and cake. So I had to put a few recipes in there that, you know, such as my like sour cherry and pomegranate sponge cake, which is kind of a real fusion between the classic Victoria sponge that is very common in the UK. But, you know, sour cherries are just such a quintessential kind of flavoring in Iranian food. So, yeah, using that. Well, um, between that and and your rice dishes, it's it's fabulous. Um, One thing that you um, you mentioned when in speaking about the Rosewater Festival, the the fragrance of, mm. of the roses and and the flavor in that lingered in your mm. mouth, and you named a dish in particular. Um, you had been eating rosewater sorbet with vermicelli. All right, tell me about that. Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> this was this is quite a special thing actually. So. Um, the town of Shiraz is known, it's in central Iran, and it's known as the epicenter of Iranian poetry. So the ancient Sufi um, mystical poets such as Hafez were born there and his um, tomb is there and Iranians flock to this. It's like a pilgrimage, you know. Uh, and so it's set in a beautiful garden. And, you know, in Iranian poetry, uh, roses play a very, uh, I mean, it's, rose, references to roses are just dotted throughout um, um, Iranian poetry. Um, kind of the, the rose and the nightingale are kind of symbols of, of like the love, like two lovers and, and kind of the, the, the role play between them. And that's all supposed to be kind of a representative of, the, the, of your relationship with God or your relationship with yourself. So it's very kind of mystical. And so we went and visited this this. this this sacred spot of poetry and it was very fitting that um, the main dessert from that region from Shiraz is this beautiful sorbet that's um, made uh, just with uh, rose water um, uh, lemon juice and obviously uh, water (laughs) and it's got frozen very thin you know uh, uh, 
yeah rice vermicelli in it uh-huh. yeah and you douse it you can add like a dollop of sour cherry jam onto it or I just liked it with a squeeze of lime and it was just exquisite I remember sitting in this garden kind of eating spoonfuls of this iced dessert on this beautifully hot day um surrounded by kind of uh pilgrims and also flowers and it was it was quite magical really. oh yeah well it just brings to mind all those vats of beautiful roses too i mean just that is it's something i'm sure to behold and uh, one one of those things on my bucket list you know i'll try that well yasmin thank you so much for joining me and sharing all this information about the Rosewater Festival and the Cuisine of Persia. And again, the book and the book is beautiful from cover to to so recipes much. to you know the um, the photographs within. And it's called The Saffron Tales, Yasmin Khan by Bloomsbury Press. Thanks so much for joining and Thank thanks you. for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.